Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for a Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today we present an interview of Kawika Guillermo led by Mark Herman Lynch. My name is Mahmoud Ababne and I am a research assistant for the Tea House project at the University of Calgary. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory. We specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksika, Pikani and Kainai First Nation as well as the Sutina First Nation comprising the Chiniki, Perspa and Wesley First Nation. We also acknowledge the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. In this interview, Mark Herman Lynch and Kawika Guillermo will be talking about different and important subjects. They start the conversation by introducing their backgrounds and the significance of their names to their writings. They discuss how names can create split and dual identities when writing fiction. Guillermo responds to questions about genre and particularly speculative fiction and magic realism. He also reflects on his own novels and how his literary works managed to break the boundaries of historical fiction genre. Kawika Guillermo is a story builder whose family and personal histories flow through many sites around and within the Pacific. He wrote two novels, Stamped, an anti-travel novel, and All Flowers Bloom. He is an assistant professor in the Social Justice Institute at the University of British Columbia, and he is the author of two academic books, Transitive Cultures and Open World Empire. Mark Herman Lynch is the author of Arborescent, published in 2020 with Arsenal Pulp Press, and a PhD student in the University of Calgary's English department. He is also president of Fillingi Station magazine and an instructor at Wordsworth Camp for Young Writers. We're here with Kavika Guillermo. Thank you so much for kind of joining us. And Thank I'm, you. So happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you at the Tea House. Uh, so just to kind of like start off, it's not really a question. I just wanted to kind of like dive in and just kind of have an open conversation about names. Particularly, for example, you use a nom de guerre, Kavika Guillermo. As you say, the, the mundane name is Chris Patterson, right? Or, or rather, it's the pseudonym for the, the mundane character of Chris Patterson. I wanted to kind of enter that through kind of like my own personal experience with names. So I come from a Chinese-French background. My parents are both immigrants, so from France and from Hong Kong. And it's interesting that I think like, for example, the way in which they named me, Mark Lynch, was in order to kind of like hide me. It's, it's kind of like to blend me in. So my mother purposely did not give me a Chinese name, right? Even a middle name. And I find, for example, it's, it's a strange, for me, it's been always this very strange space to write with a Mark Herman Lynch, but then I write about mixed race or Asian characters. And so my first book, Arborescent, came out, and part of it was talking about East Asian diaspora. And yet the name of the book is on the book is Mark Herman Lynch. And I'm like, I do not know how to reconcile that. So I was wondering for yourself, who's gone through this, uh, how you go about reconciling this? Um, yeah, thank you for the question. Thanks for having me on the on the show. 
Um, just for our protocol's sake, I am speaking to you from um, UBC campus on the unceded and ancestral uh, lands of the Musqueam people. And I, I'll take, I'll try and bring back settler colonialism, I'm sure, into the discussion a bit more so that this is not just a kind of lip service thing. I think it also relates to that question. Um, I do feel like weirdly alienated whenever I see my, um, either of my names on books. So just to like let you know that doesn't go away, I don't think, right. <laughs> even if you... <laughs> change, you know, the name that you're using. But I am mixed race, Filipino and white mostly, uh, though there's other things in there that are a bit too complicated to like really talk about briefly. But I, it's one of those issues that I, I don't mind discussing because even though pe people always want to know why I write under this name, because it's always changing kind of depending on the project. I mean, the, the short answer is that it's Kavika is my matrilineal name. It's the name that my mother wanted me to have, name I probably would have had where I born in Hawaii, which is where um, a lot of her, where she was born, where most of her family was born. Um, and they take on these um, native Hawaiian names, they take on um, Filipino names and other names and so on. And that's become kind of normalized there. That's still somewhat problematic, right? And so it's the, and it's her last name, Guillermo, which is um, Spanish from the Philippines and usually kind of associated with Chinese Filipinos. So that's the, like the short brief answer. The longer answer I think goes back to like, it seems like you read something probably from like four or five years ago where I called my patrilineal name Chris as my mun or my mundane name. And that's kind of just a funny way of referring to its whiteness and its assimilationist <laughs> right. you know, that you referred to. Because I was born in Portland, Oregon, which is a very, it's like the whitest big city in the United States. And my father is white, and so there was absolutely you know, an attempt to try and flatten that name into something more mundane. <laughs> and so I use the word mundane, um, but it also comes from role playing. I uh, I first started writing through chat room role playing online, uh, and we would like role play like video game characters and, yeah. and things like that, and we invent our own characters. And if you've ever done this before, um, the community is really prickly, I would say, about about how well you you can um, capture your own character. Right. That you basically are your character. You're more important. The, the character is more important than you. And so the nickname that they give to your you, the real person sitting there, is Mun, like M-U-N, which means mundane. So Kavika is the person, and then the Mun is Chris Patterson. And I think part of me has always kind of held on to that a bit. Now I wouldn't. I I, I kind of found other ways to to think about the name more in terms of lineage. You know, as as a site that that is kind of fun to continually problematize. Because I wasn't given a choice in either of my names, mm -hmm. and so I don't necessarily like see either of them as an act of creation or of self of self making. They right. both have their own issues and problems, and um, I think they're kind of fun to you know fun things to play with in the world, um, even right. as and to problematize, right? To continually keep at a distance a bit. Right, and it's interesting how, for example, you ascribe your use of the of Kavika Guillermo, and you you connect it with Onotowatana the um, the Chinese American writer who wrote under that nom de plume so that she could write about geishas or romance and Japanese mm -hmm. romance. Well, she was, she was also Canadian. Um, oh, I she think was... she often gets classified, right? Um, her and her sister both. Um, and I think Calgary is a, a special place for Onoda Watana as well. Um, I think she mm -hmm. still has an archive there. Her history is so fascinating. I, I felt it's, it's strange to say it because she is like a fake. Like, she's like <laughs> <laughs> very much a fake in a sense. You know, she poses like a Japanese princess. Um, she was also quite well-traveled and, you know, cosmopolitan. And so she knew the game pretty well and inserted herself in a, pretty impressively into it. Yeah. 
And she also had a lot of regrets about doing that. You know, of course, those regrets seem to come after uh, World War II and, you know, people right. looking at Japanese very differently. <laughs> right, so, right. Like, good for her for catching up, but it was a, the timing is a bit questionable. But, you know, like she wrote a book that had like no name attached to it, just called, I think it was called Me, <laughs> like, right. like a, a pretty clear autobiography. And so I think there's ways of looking at her as, you know, a fake and a phony, which is kind of true, but it's also kind mm -hmm. of true that she was really playing with the market and playing with these names and the way that people receive them. And I think there's a playfulness too that I'm trying to do a bit. I'm much more transparent, obviously. Like you yeah. can't look up either of my names without seeing the other name. So right. it's, I'm not trying to hide anything. But I like, uh, one of the reasons I liked using Kavika Guillermo since I was young, but really in my fiction was because mm -hmm. I, I chose never to write about myself, mm -hmm. never to write autobiography because it was just such, such a stereotype, right? That Asian American or that ethnic authors write autobiographies. So I wanted to, people to read a story about like Germans, you know, after World War II from the name Kavika Guillermo. I just thought that was kind yeah. of like a bit unsettling to a lot of people. Yeah. And so I, I was, I wanted to like play around and mess with the kind of politics of identity and authenticity, which, um, I, yeah, I think I'm, my work is kind of a humorist at, at heart. And so I think part of it's always trying to point out the absurdities, even though there's always dark, I think that will help us understand the darkness kind of right, the things right. underlying them that are so important. It's interesting how in your essay, why I write under a pen name, you, you actually do talk about it. You do talk about the difficulties of entering an industry based upon this type of name. But you also, at the very end of the essay, talk about how it's both an act of identification and resistance. And just to quote yourself to you and just for our readers, you say, at some point, I had to decide for myself that this is not the kind of writing I would ever participate in, the, you know, pretense, uh, the pretense of who I was. And as Kavika Guillermo, under my mother's name, I can disrupt this system. I can refuse the ethnic story. I can remain obtuse, obscure, difficult, frustrating, silly, trite, nonsensical. Instead of evoking a question mark, my name will invoke a middle finger. And I love this form of resistance that you have in terms of, yes, it's a sort of an acceptance of ourselves, but acceptance of all this complexity that comes with it in terms of the industry, in terms of, yeah. And I would like to, I was wondering if you would have any more to speak to that. If not, we yeah. can just move on. No, definitely. Um, and I think this is why my way of articulating the name is always changing too, because you know what's popular in media and in literature and when it come and what's happening in the world is always changing. And so uh, me trying to think about identification in a kind of more resistance lens mm -hmm. demands change. And so it can be a bit confusing because like right. things I wrote like five or six years ago, I might like, yeah, that was then, but now it's a bit different. So it also seems like aggravatingly inconsistent, which is also kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it kind of, but the thing is it's adaptation to change, right? Yeah, and it keeps you writing. I mean, I think uh, you might have some uh, insight into this as well, being like speculative and silly in your own work too. But I feel like never being on on solid ground and never being easily identifiable keeps you mm -hmm. constantly trying to like wrestle with things, right? Um, mm -hmm. I feel like once I'm settled on a question or on an issue, it's incredibly hard to write about it once I feel like I know what I'm talking about, you know? Because yeah, yeah. writing is an explorative process, yeah. right? Um, and so I want to think with the reader, right? I want to, I don't want to tell the reader what to think. I want them to come with me on this journey to find answers to things, which is another reason I try not never to talk about like what I'm writing before right. I'm writing it, right? Because then sometimes a friend will help you figure things out and you're like, damn it, now I've lost that whole like impulse. I don't need to <laughs> write it no down purpose. anymore. <laughs> 
yeah. yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you talk about how yeah people want to pin you down, and actually the I think that for example maybe or what do you think about this? The ways in which people are always talking about your name, Kavika Guillermo versus Chris Patterson. Who are you? The fact that there's a dual identity, they just can't not wrap their head around. And I wonder if you think that that's part of the process of like the the splitting um, is part of the process. Your your part of your writing process. Uh, I think I mean yeah, because I'm also an academic, and so I'm in both of those kind of worlds as well. Um, academic writing and fiction writing, and to me, those things aren't really that different. They're they're different genres, you know. They they ask different questions, seek different answers a bit. But you know, there's a long history of, especially like racialized people, black authors, authors of color who mm-hmm. do both. W. E. B. Du Bois is one of the most like, of course, like you know, well known and historical. But mm-hmm. a lot of people these days, Fred Moten has poetry. Um, Saidia Hartman is doing kind of critical fabulation, as she calls it. Right. Uh, so I think there's a lot of imaginative use and like Larissa Lai, obviously. <laughs> yeah, Larissa. And and so I think, but I like, I, but people do have a hard time seeing them. And usually um, they want m- me and others who are in this tradition to choose one. And um, basically what they're doing is trying to figure out like, what's your hobby? Like, which one is your hobby? Which one are you serious about? Which is like a, a really terrible way, I think, to come across um, this kind of uh, dual identities, I suppose. And again, I, I try to counter their expectations a bit by saying that they're both my hobby. You know? right. <laughs> I'm not really serious about either of them. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that always shocks them a bit because yeah. <laughs> they're like, what the hell is this, who's this person? What are they doing? Um, but it's also true in some ways. Like I, I only stayed in academia because of the recession and I knew I was eating ramen every night, you know, and I was like, this is, doesn't change anything for me, but... Um, I knew I had done a lot of service work. I had done kind of custodial work, uh, warehouse work and things like that. And so I just knew I didn't want to do that. And if I didn't go to grad school, then that would be it for me. And so it was very much a practical decision to be an academic. Um, And whereas fiction, right, but I developed a passion for it. And so it kind of became my hobby as something I didn't see as my career, but something I really liked doing. And fiction was always that to me as well. It was something that I just, I thought I would just be a poor warehouse worker or, um, you know, service worker having to smile at customers all day. And on the side, I would write stories and share them with my best friends and things like that. That's really what I thought my life was going to be. And so I always thought that too, as a hobby, it was just something to do for fun. And so now I, I'm very, 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 very lucky that I get to do those things now professionally for, because they do bring me a lot of joy and it is a lot of fun for me <laughs> to write both academic and fiction. And so it's it's something that um, I still see them both as like fun hobbies that I would be doing. You know, you're not allowed to, you're not supposed to say this for promotion reasons, but and and cost. But it's something I would probably be doing if I didn't have to. Yeah. Um, if I like lived on island somewhere, <laughs> I'd probably still be writing things. <laughs> yeah, and it is a nice privilege to be able to actually, you know, do what you want to do for a living, right? In some part, it is a sort of. And, and and one of the rarest things, unfortunately, these days, um, yeah. which is why I'm very honest with my students, um, as I think all writers should be. They're like, this is just really, really low chance that you can do this professionally and sustain it for 
a career. I can't even like I'm I'm mostly a teacher. That's mostly what I get paid for, which is probably the closest I could think of as a career. But it's just it's I, I think we have to adjust to that and say like you know there are a lot all these writers who have day jobs and that's a good thing because it it's where their experience comes from. They're capturing ways of life that like these writing celebrities can't really do because that's what they are. Yeah. Because they're just writing celebrities. They don't. They're not you know everyday people I suppose. And so I think. You know, literary festivals and things like that do do a good job, I think, of trying to get some diversity, but I don't think it's enough. I think indie presses and, you know, small audiences are really important and something that um, my, I try to tell my students, like, if you like, just think about a small audience, you know, think about like, think of yourself as a punk rock band or some somebody who goes up and plays at a cafe right. once a week and your friends are all there, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, it has the community and, element of it, right? Yeah, it's a community element, and it's about recharging. It's a kind of medicinal in a way, right? People are going and, and mm. feeling energized and enthralled, and you're expressing yourself to them and sharing yourself, and that's really important. Oh, I love um, that. Don't think about, like, winning the Nobel Prize or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only reason I write, to win the Nobel Prize, <laughs> Guillermo. Actually, just to go on to the next question, I, I, I think this is a sort of seamless transition. So in, in, in a 2012 interview, uh, you discuss writing speculative fiction, but say that no one is really interested. Uh, what do you think has changed, if anything? What attracts you to the speculative fiction genre? And in what ways do you think speculative fiction comments, connects, or conflicts with our contemporary North American culture or climate? It has changed quite a bit. And I also just wasn't as... Um hadn't read as much in 2012 too. So that was also probably a problem. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously that like there was Octavia Butler and there's huge presences in speculative fiction, but I think for a lot of, you know, marginalized like people of color, uh, only until quite recently, I would say like in the past decade has speculative fiction really yeah. entered into, you know, our consciousness as something that we can do besides, I guess, magical realism. Yeah. And so I connect speculative fiction now, I call it a kind of, racial radical racial tradition is what i'm calling it um and you know it goes back to like w.e.b du bois and Sadie hartman and, and um other folks who i've been thinking about and w.e.b du bois also wrote like speculative fiction and romance and genre fiction but uh it's it's changed quite a bit in the sense that not only you know do we have more uh, we have nk jemison of course and the, like yes. all these huge award-winning uh, people of color black and indigenous authors who mm -hmm. are becoming more successful in speculative fiction but uh, more people are reading like Octavia Butler and Samuel Delaney. Like there was a time where it felt like you could study and read Octavia Butler and have no one to talk to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now like she's super popular. I think she made the New York Times bestseller list for the first time, like uh, this year or last year, like, quite recently. Um, and so her readership has, has gotten humongous compared to what it used to be. Right, right. And then you have television shows like Lovecraft Country and so on that are right. really uh, making an impact. But yeah, I see that as... A, as coming as somewhat similar to magical realism in its popularity, but more uh, um, whereas magical realism, of course, was seen as coming from the post-colonial states. This kind of radical racial tradition that I'm thinking about in speculative fiction is is it's in more the kind of first world spaces or global north, but it's also in in those other spaces. Like there's a lot of um, there's quite a few anthologies and journals now located in like Southeast Asia, for example. Yeah, yeah. That are about speculative fiction and dedicated to that. There's some white writers who then try to like steal that work, um, which has not been so great, <laughs> but it happens, right? And I think if we, if 
there needs to be like a genre term for it. Like speculative fiction, I think is good, but it doesn't quite have the same racial colonial power, you know, dynamics that the term magical realism, I think, carries with it. I think a lot of it falls under this more, rad- this I guess, more radicalized way of, of writing. And what they all have in common for me is they're really invested in other ways of seeing race and, and colonial power. But realism doesn't quite capture it anymore. And magical realism doesn't quite either. And so I'm, I'm trying to think about that in my own work as well. Like, how does race... What am I like? I think All Flowers Bloom, for example, I'm trying to give a more galactic view yeah. of race. Like it is all about race, even though race yeah. is not really <laughs> like, like the main subject through a yeah. lot of it. it. It really is about race, but it's just not race as such. Um, and so that's one thing I think a lot of these writers are trying to do is think about race in very different ways and find moments in history or in the future that um, allow these kind of more creative um, reimaginings of race. Right. And I wonder if speculative fiction is also maybe even a little bit predictive, whereas magical realist is more, seems at times more allegorical. And yeah, and I find, for example, your work and Larissa Lai's work as well, right, the tiger flu, it's amazing to see we have, we have the tiger flu that's published in 2019, and all of a sudden, the, the pandemic happens, right? And yeah. uh, you have this, and it's very interesting in terms of how you can kind of also, or how you and uh, others like you are able to critique larger power structures mm-hmm. through this lens of the speculative. And so yeah. I wonder, like, how would you how would you define the speculative for yourself? Well, just to respond to speculating on the future, it's something that I always go back to Ursula Le Guin, who mm-hmm. to me is like one of the, you know, main matriarchs <laughs> <should I> call <laughs> yeah. of speculative fiction <laughs> in that she wrote in so many different genres, not just science fiction, right, but fantasy and all sorts. But they all kind of carry her unique attitude and way of way of seeing things. But she was really against the idea of science fiction being telling the future in any way or, or being read that way, at least, even though it could it could happen, right, that things would turn out close to her books. But she was saying that wasn't really a prediction. Right. That was just me seeing things in the present, right, and trying to expand on them. And I think that's that's something I take on as a writer. I, I try not to make predictions, though I think like if we read Larissa Lai's work and other people's work that way, that totally is fine and, and works for them. But I think one thing that I'm trying to touch on is the way that we see the past and the future. You know, there are complete, there are nations, island nations that are very close to being totally underwater because of global warming. And so that's, we could see that as our future, but that's their present. And similarly with like things, when we think about the past, right, there's people who are living in situations that we might think are uh, regressive or dystopic, right? Mm-hmm. Or post atom bomb or something. Right. <laughs> but that's again, in the present, that's their present. And the way we think about it could be entirely different. Um, and so everything, you know, in All Flowers Bloom, it talks about every, there are stories about every moment in history, it seems besides our present in history and in our future. But they're really like different. They're, I would say a lot of them are presents that are people actually live right now. But according to our, because our own sense of time is so messed up, you know, and so universalized, right? We believe everyone seems to be going through what we're going through. Then they seem like speculative. And this is something that I found really common in Filipino speculative fiction, uh, Philippine speculative fiction, where Charles Yu, for example, who's one of the main Philippine science fiction authors these days, um, had this exact similar response where people were asking him, like, predictions about the future. And he said... You know, the, there's no predictions here. It's all, I'm just, the, the Philippines just looks like a really weird place from the outside. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and so some people think it's in the future, think it's in the past. And it's yeah. speculative, it is, but it's not 
it's not exactly what he's going for. Yeah, and then some of the things about the present are also so weird that you just expand on them a little bit and make them a yeah. bit more normalized, and it, it can seem futuristic. And so I think that's a bit of what Larissa is also doing, Larissa Lai is also doing in um, Saltfish Girl. I think she's writing that a bit inspired by cloning, right? And cloning was happening at the time, right? It was quite present. But not, she just expanded on that point and like, what if cloning was much more common? And, and then in Voila, it becomes more um, speculative that way. Right. But I don't know if I would call that a prediction. Right? Right. It's a it's a bit of a like a centering on particular topics in order to really think through them. Maybe it's like uncannily predictive in the fact that once we once it's kind of emerged into the world, then we start seeing it everywhere, right? It's almost like giving us yes. a language for it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, it's giving a language to help deal with things that may become bigger, but are all, mm-hmm. also all, they're already quite big for particular peoples that were they're just not us. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to move now into like All Flowers Bloom. I'm interested like how you actually blend these spiritual and religious elements. Because in uh, in the book, you move bet- between like monotheistic or typically monotheistic Islam, Christianity, to polytheistic traditions, Hindu, Greek. There's also quite a bit of Buddhism in there. But the central crux to the story seems to be this a stream of life and the grand Mediterranean paradise cruise the sort of the space in which we always are returning to, the character of um, 817 is always returning to. So do you have a main reference point for these spiritual processes of reincarnation in terms of like you, you took from this mythology more than another? Yeah, um, it's it's also not a paradise cruise. It's a pleasure cruise. Oh, sorry, pleasure cruise. <laughs> it's, yeah, I can't take the pleasure away from the cruise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think I just miswrote it in my question. Sorry. <laughs> it's definitely not a paradise for a lot of people. No. Um, but uh, that particularly, so like when you die in, in the story, and you, if you've lived your life in a particular way, and the way is not revealed exactly told towards the end but if you've done certain things in your life you go to um this great mediterranean pleasure cruise which is a cruise ship a, f- a pleasure cruise ship so that's fun <laughs> uh big queer cruise ship in some ways but um i got that particularly from alfred yusan he has a um book called the great uh, i'm confusing it for my word now uh, the great uh, philippine jungle energy cafe and it's a similar concept except it's like the nation's heroes and he's playing with like the way nationalist history works, <laughs> but all the nation's heroes and also like a bunch of communists right. like Marx and, and some like rock stars go, when they die, they go to this cafe in the jungle, great jungle energy cafe. And it's just kind of loopy and silly because the cafe is also a very colonial, like bourgeois mm-hmm. space. <laughs> so right. he's commenting on that. Right. I just thought that was really funny. And I wanted to yeah. like, what would my space be? I've never been on a cruise ship. I've been on many ships, but never a cruise ship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I thought that would be funny. But the rest of the the question about spirituality um, and, and religion uh, are very things that I try to make a bit silly because I grew up in a very serious religious Christian environment. Both of my grandfathers, um, both my Filipino um, Hawaii based grandfather and my white grandfather, who's passed now, um, but they were both preachers with their own congregations. That's how my parents met was through the kind of somewhat colonial like relationship between the churches in mainland US and in Hawaii. And um, they were both kind of problem children, <laughs> both my parents. Um, so 
uh, when we when I came, me and my twin brother, we and and my sister, um, who's nine years older, like we were really put into these restrictive religious environments. And you know, a lot of people were. And Octavia Butler was um, also, you know, and grew up very religious. Um, James Baldwin and others. And I feel like a lot of writers are writers who were intended at some point to become preachers and then decided not to, <laughs> which is my history too. Like my father wanted to send me to a kind of seminary school. And so I was supposed to be like the next big preacher in the family, I think. What a difference that would have been. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's, it's uh, so I take spiritualism like as a very everyday practice, I think. And that's what makes it funny for me is that I can, I can kind of make fun of it a bit and play with it because I don't see it as a big abstract distance thing. I see it mm. as very everyday and something that I really have a lot of attachment to. Right. Um, I do have a lot of attachment to Buddhism too. And I sometimes I also like, go in and out of believing in ghosts and um, certain spiritual beliefs. Right. Um, just kind of, de- sometimes it just depends on the time of day. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that last, uh, the last haunting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At two, three or four in the morning, I will definitely believe in ghosts. Um, I always feel yeah. like you, you don't believe in ghosts until something weird happens to you. And in that moment you believe, right? Wholeheartedly. Yeah. And then after it's passed, okay, you, you stop believing again. So it's uh... yes. My my uh, father-in-law, who um, is living with us at this moment, um, both him, and my mother-in-law, they're they're Chinese Cambodian, and my father-in-law always says he doesn't believe in ghosts, but he says it in the funniest way. He says like, "I do not believe in ghosts. That's why the ghosts never haunt me. That's why the ghosts never touch me because right. I just don't believe in them." Yeah. It's like, but you're saying that, that they <laughs> so you definitely believe they exist. Yeah. You just not. You're just ignoring the fact that they exist, but yeah. you definitely still believe in it. <laughs> like, it's interesting. Yeah. It's also there's this karmic element in your book. And also, I feel like, for example, just in, I, I shouldn't say East Asian kind of uh, communities, but I'm going to just speak mm, for myself. Yeah. For my, my, my mother is very, very concerned with karma. It's not necessarily yeah. religion. And so whenever something happens, she's always very concerned about what is the universe's repercussions <laughs> right so uh yeah. that you've brought upon yourself and so i'm always yeah. thinking about that even though i don't think she would ever say outright i believe in karma it just kind of infuses everything that she does right and how yeah. she kind of acts this is this reminds me of a, a, a newly uncovered interview with octavia butler on democracy now hmm. um i think they just um played the full thing and they never played the full interview before um, but they do talk about spiritualism and, and Butler says, you know, that I never have to really worry about doing the wrong thing because she was raised so religious that her conscience just would never allow her to do the wrong thing. Interesting. At least knowingly, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I I really related to that. I was like, you know, I don't really believe in karma or universal like gods or anything like that, but I also don't have to mm-hmm. because they wouldn't be pissed at me anyways. Because right. like, <laughs> I have to be a good person because my like, conscience is just so ridiculously powerful and i can like joke about doing like bad things or you know naughty things or whatever but (laughs) like my body physically can't if i know it's ethically wrong in some way and so in a sense i don't have it's it's kind of this is what octavia butler also said that it's it's freeing it's weirdly freeing in a way because you don't have to obsess over those things as much you just know that your body and your something about your inner psychology is going to keep you from doing that but in All Flowers Bloom, it does work out a bit that way, that there's a kind of complicity to empire and to power and to uh, suffering, right, that um, a lot of the characters have to wrestle with, you know. Yeah. Um, and so even though, the, so I, I'm very curious about how people like me who have very strong consciousnesses because it was, or 
yeah, because it was ingrained from a very young age, right? Who can't ever see themselves doing wrong or feel like they're incapable of it, end up doing it anyway. (laughs) Yes. Like what are the kind of structural elements that cause people who have very good intentions to do horrible, horrible things? And I always take a bit of recourse to that quote. I can't remember who says it, but that if we were born in the right time, um, in the right place, we would all be gas chamber assistants, you know? Um, And I, I... what, what, keep, what makes me consider that is that I know that those, even under those ideologies, like those people are brought up to think in certain ways or to think that what they're doing is right. And so having a firm conscience doesn't actually keep them from recreating, reproducing mass violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I think all my work is actually quite, that's one of the things at the center of both of my first two novels, at least. And I think in All Flowers Bloom, of course, it's much more expansive, like what happens over... Um, what are the larger consequences of doing the wrong thing because you can't see the structure right? and you can't yeah. see the history yeah. or you refuse to see it? You know, it's interesting because in, in, like in a conversation that you had with uh, Vincent Trinita, you end uh, the kind of conversation by talking about social amnesia. And just to kind of give a quote back to you, you say, we found ways to work our atrocities in without repairing them or making moves to heal without simply making historical atrocity more tolerable so we can maintain the status quo. It's almost like being reborn, starting over and over without any memory at all. Now, in, in like your text, you represent this concept so, so well. And I wonder if whether you feel that it's the character's love or desire for personal gratific- gratification that functions as this amnesiac or this, this creation of amnesia. Because if you think about All Flowers Bloom, Right, you have the the blue tea or the level five thousand counter hex that strips memory, right? But also in yeah. even short stories like What Fell Beneath the Train Tracks, where a nude man falls off the train and then it becomes this the characters the character can't quite fathom it and it just becomes his obsession. Suddenly by the end of the story, it's almost lost. It's almost he doesn't think about it at all. It's just kind of like that atrocity has been kind of wiped out because he's unable to kind of understand it within his framework and he also has to kind of just function uh within this space that he can't get a get around in right and so he's lost and so he's he's concerned with his not personal gratification there but he's so concerned with his personal plight that he forgets the atrocity and i, I wonder if that is one of those these elements that is so central to one of, to your books Oh, absolutely it is and part of it's personal because my memory is as bad as um the, the main character of All Flowers Bloom, 871. Like, I'm, <laughs> like asking you, yeah. my friends or um, my partner, like, I have, like, the worst memory, which is, like, which I think helps write, um, to be frank, because I've never distracted, really. My brain always feels a bit clean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, for whatever reason. But yeah. it, it, so the, there's that, and then there's also the kind of more ethical standpoint that you're kind of motioning towards. And uh, this, again, I get from a lot of um, Filipino writers, Philippine X writers, um, who like, um, not just Alfred Yusan, but like Gina Apostol, Jessica Hagerdorn, they're just, there seems like this tradition in Philippine, Philippine American and um, Philippine Canadian and writing in the Philippines mm-hmm. of a, continually having to address the forgetfulness of the nation <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and almost like mocking it and, and having fun with it. Um, there's a, a novel by uh, Ninochka Roska called State of War. It's a really famous novel uh, where she just 
the main characters, like you, you're introduced to the main characters. There's three of them yeah. and they don't know what they're doing or why they're doing things. They're just doing things. They're just living based on like their own experiences and at a big festival. And um, they're trying, one of them is like trying to kill the president <laughs> um, who's visiting the festival. But then you go back, then the second, then the, the novel suddenly stops and it goes like four or 500 years in the, in the past. Yeah. And you get to live through their ancestors. And every 50 or so years, there's like a loop where right. the same history will happen. Don't remember what happened before. And so they end mm-hmm. up reliving the same thing over and over again. So you see some of the exact same lines of dialogue yeah, <laughs> reappear yeah. Yeah. Um, with totally different characters who are their descendants. And then at the end, you get back to the present day. Right. And it's it's one of those amazing moments in literature because you suddenly understand everything about what's happening in the present. Right. Except that the the characters themselves have no idea. I think one of them does because they have this kind of magical connection to the past, but the others have no idea. And so you just see them continuing to make the same mistakes yeah. <laughs> and yeah. effing up you know, in, the, in the exact same ways. And you're just like, no. Like, yeah. And then you you're, you put down the novel and you're like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> Well, absolutely. That's 8172 in a nutshell, right? To continually be going out into these atrocity-filled spaces and be so concerned for S that they commit the atrocities. They, They continually commit the atrocities in the name of, because of, or in order to get hold of S, right? Yes. It's a fascinating... Of of various sorts, yeah. Yeah. And actually, this leads me to my maybe my next question. It actually has to do with the sort of the metafictional element within the story. Uh, now, I don't want to give away too much, but it's interesting how, for example, um, you use the second person quite a bit to refer yeah. to S. Um, and then later in the book, we're given this sort of very interesting turnabout, this question. And I don't think it's, it's too much to, add, to to give away to people. But this very interesting question of whether or not S has really been reborn or are you just like this you character who is really you, right? Who is this, mm-hmm. this, this S person? Are you really you? Is the reader really you? And I think, for example, in All Flowers Bloom, there's a lot of self-referentiality, metafictional self-referentiality, I would say. It comes also in the stylistic choices you made for the chapters, particularly those demarcated with the Latin alphabet, where you kind of have these tongue-in-cheek notes as if Mm -hmm. we are commenting, like somebody outside of the text is actually commenting on the text. It's a fantastic kind of technique. So I was wondering, like, what you, how do you think, or what is your draw to metafiction and self-referentiality, and what do you think that metafiction allows you to access as an author? I think, um, you know, I took, I sat in on MFA workshops and took writing courses and read books about writing and and so on. Some of them were were really good, but I was also always disappointed with the values, I guess, I I would see in in a lot of um, fiction writing workshops. Like, the goal is, of course, to really immerse the reader and to give them a story that seems like totally authentic and real. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but this is not, you know, scholarly work. Like right. <laughs> there's not experts, experts in the field don't read over this and make sure everything's correct. Right. This is really just like some dude saying these things, usually a white dude, right? Who's doing this. Um, why, why do we value that so heavily? Like when, what we're kind you know, this is when fiction first started back in like, I don't even know when the 17 or 1600s or something. (laughs) People were very, very concerned that like people would read fiction novels and think that they were true. Yeah. 
Um, I think that's actually something that has never left the novel as a form. People expect accuracy and authenticity yeah. in a novel. And part of that, getting that feeling is the complete immersion, right? Never having to um, relate the novel to your daily life, never having to relate it to yourself. I noticed that there were certain techniques that writing workshops and uh, writing books told you not to do in order to keep that immersion. And so me, like being kind of a Brechtian, I guess, thinker and humorist, I guess, in some ways, was like, I'll just take all those techniques and put them into my books. Right. <laughs> That's how I'll write, I'll write with, a, you know, to try and make, to try and continually break that immersion. Yeah. But I also, I, I do love and enjoy the immersion. Like, I think yeah. each of the episodes or the chapters could each be read very immersively. Some of them are only like two or three pages, right? But then I always want the reader to come out of it and be able to kind of think about what that means to them. And so the, the, the you narrative, I think, is one way of doing that, right? The second person narrative. The, and I do that in both my novels. Like you said, the notations are another way to think about how this text might be an artifact in the world. Mm -hmm. And if it's an artifact in the world, then what impact might it have on you right, or on the world? I also just love writing in books. I'm like, all my books have heavily annotated right. notes. And so I'm just one of those people that um, if you let me borrow a book, um, you'll never want it back because you'll just see tons of writing. Yeah. But I always love coming at a book and seeing someone else's notes in it. And I felt like it was more of a conversation I was have with, having with some distant library uh, patron somewhere. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people don't like it because they want the real experience of the book. And so I think that was a way of saying there is no real experience, <laughs> you know, everything's going to be framed somehow. And so that's probably like where it does get a bit meta. Um, actually, I'm, I'm trying to like think about ways now that I can break those, that immersion or make things that are really important to the reader's life. And, hmm. but without those techniques, right. uh, without relying on those techniques a bit, though, I, I feel like I've done a lot of it in, in the, the two books. And so I'm not sure exactly where to go from there but that's that was my thinking behind it was having something that was very teachable that students could then relate to themselves immediately right. um, as opposed to like getting immersed in like a 400 page novel and then at the very end you put it down and just talk about with you know it with your friends and there's no real interpretation that goes on right yeah. it's just what part did you like what part did you not like yeah. <laughs> which I don't find all that um, as interesting ways of talking about books yeah. but and there are some there are quite a few books that have tried to mimic that uh, that intertextual kind of uh, relation. I think yeah. a few is like Pale Fire in the Block yeah. of, or Danielewski, or even actually J.J. Abrams has that book S, right? Uh, yeah, I haven't read. <laughs> it's yeah. painful to read. It's a painful one because <laughs> the problem is like the the whole the whole scenario is is built around this concept that they're writing in a book that is brilliant mm. literature, and the brilliant literature that you're reading is terrible. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very attracted to speculative ways of doing it. Like um, mm -hmm. Gene Wolfe does it incredibly well in his I can't remember the name of the series. Um, it's a big, famous series. Um, it's one of the first like big um, fantasy series that I really mm -hmm. loved. But it starts out with a, and a lot of this is just through frame narratives. Right. But I think it starts off with somebody telling a story that happened a long time ago. But then they continue to tell the story and they're kind of framing the whole story right. throughout these books. And it, I always found that fascinating because you know that the whole book is fake, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so you know this person's point of view is also fake. I, I think that it, I, it works for me better in speculative, speculative fiction because it's working on multiple levels of, like, inauthenticity and fakeness, you know? Right. So here's a fake frame to, for the fake story that you're going to read by a person who has a horrible memory. 
<laughs> well, that's why you write the book. So the book can be your memory, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It becomes the memory of, becomes, of mankind, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, just thinking about how you kind of construct uh, the, the texts, right? All Flowers Bloom and uh, Stamped are quite different, but they also have some similarities in that we never situate ourselves for too long in one place, right? So we're always quickly moving. So uh, in Stamped, an anti-travel novel, right, uh, you specifically move between cities at a rapid pace. And I was just reading some of the reviews around it. And one of the reviews that talked about the anti-travel concept came back to this strange identity formation construction. And I just wanted to read it to you and then we can maybe talk about it a little bit more. So this person says, John Grant Ross from the Camphor Press says about the anti-travel novel, I'm an old fashioned white guy with a weakness for colonial nostalgia and one prone to daydreaming visions of colonial administration and maverick exploration. I still hold to my childhood conception that travel should involve an element of heroic quest, or at least be educational. He still loves the novel, but at the same time, I think there's like something strange in his sort of resistance to it, almost as if you're thrusting an identity formation on him by it being anti-travel. And I was wondering, uh, what does it mean for you to be like to create something that is anti-travel or anti-historical or ahistorical rather, and why? And we talked yeah. a little bit about this, but. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I actually like that review because mm-hmm. um, in some ways it does demonstrate the, the point of the book, which is to make you, which is to kind of call out a little bit, but um, it's very different, like in All Flowers Bloom, uh, I'm trying to, again, think about different languages for race. It's much more speculative in that sense, but it's also very much thinking about race and power and colonialism. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, Stamped is like just a completely like um, unrestrictive way that it's a, it's a kind of the way that we would talk about race on a couch in private with our friends, you know, right, right. that kind of thing. <laughs> or in a bar yeah, um, yeah. while we're half drunk or something. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just very in your face, kind of the way that race is talked about um, and power is talked about throughout that book between very multiracial people. And so, um, you know, they just, they call like the white guy in the group, you know, all sorts of names you know? and he kind of owns up to it. But uh, just by his presence and being there is already saying a lot that like he doesn't mind it, I guess. And so I, I feel like with that book, when I read that review the first time, I was like, what the heck is going on? I was like confused. And, and then as I thought about it more, I was like, this is actually like the ideal outcome <laughs> of reading Stamped. Yeah, that yeah. You suddenly feel called out and defensive about who you are. <laughs> like, yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, this, is, this works. Probably not the best publicity point, right? Like read this book and feel called out. Um, I'm like, who am I to call anyone out? I'm like, not no one uh, <laughs> to be doing that. The book is doing it for you. <laughs> exactly. The book is calling me out as the author. I think that's what it's really yeah. doing. But that's something about the anti, you know, that's something I wanted people to know about travel too, is that travel mm-hmm. does call you out in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. And I think unless you restrict yourself to certain tourists, you know, maps and areas and things like that, you'll never feel that. Yeah. But to me, that that is the more educational benefit, I suppose, or like experiential benefit of travel is you do realize how just how um, narrow your life world is and your views are. And like this guy says, like how he is conditioned to appreciate or to think that to like value travel as a certain kind of colonial practice. Mm -hmm. Like if you can get a white, an older white guy to say like, yes, I do. It seems that I do. 
like calling you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> your job is done. Like you've you've done well in this world. <laughs> like now I see that review and I'm like, okay, I did. I at least got this yeah. guy to like admit some things to himself. But yeah, I think that's something that travel also 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 um, offers us. Right, it gets us to admit who we are and who we are in respect to other people in the world. That like our yeah. problems, while while very important um, in some ways, like we need to deal with our problems, obviously, but that we can't. We have to keep other people in mind all right. the time, like right, right. Um, not just people who are in the room or in the, the city, but people whose lives are really affected by the things that we do. And and I think re- certain kinds of travel can really bring that out. Right. Um, the name anti-travel, though, was just, you know, we had a long list of different like titles for the book. Um, mm-hmm. And my partner, um, now wife, is... Uh, just thought anti-travel was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so I took it on and I, was, and I, I loved it too. So I think it really typifies the novel in the sense that it is resisting mainstream narratives about travel. Yeah. And it also seems to be kind of telling us what we already know about travel in the fact that what you think... So if you go to a space thinking you're going to be educated in one thing, you'll be uh, rudely awakened. Right? Mm-hmm. You'll go to Paris thinking that you're going to look at the Louvre and you're going to look at all these different things and you'll realize very quickly that you're going to be shocked about Parisian culture, which is a fantastic, great kind of feeling of immersion. And that's the education. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I'm mostly thinking of, it's hard for me to switch context with it, I guess. Mm. First of all, because I've never been to Paris. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> that was just a random example. But I'm thinking of, you know, like when you go to places like Cambodia or Laos or um, Vietnam, you know, and you see the history of American atrocity, but also Canadian complicity to that to that atrocity, you know, and and certain those states, too, are sometimes interested in narrativizing it in particular ways. But it does make history and certain violences unforgettable. Mm -hmm. It's hard to just glance over the Vietnam War. Once you've actually been to those bombing sites, right, um, it makes things much more palpable and real in a way that you know media mediated kind of things can't. Um, which isn't to say everyone should go travel because it, again, it's really it's a privilege to be able to travel in a lot of ways. It's you know it destroys the environment and all that. So not everyone should be doing it. It's definitely I'm not saying like ethics of movement, but I think there's there's you could also just go to certain parts of your own city. Yeah. Right. And face things that you could only think about abstractly mm-hmm. um, at other moments and, um, you know, be involved in trying to do something about that power relationship. So uh, in the interview you have with uh, Vincent Ternita, like I, I mentioned this one before, you talk about how neoliberalism is a, is a lot about claiming of a lot about claiming a marginalized identity in order to be, and I quote, granted power by a higher power like a god or a state or an institution. And you call this uh, concept trickle-down power. Um, How do you feel your work resists this? And how do you feel your work takes for or gives power to marginalized identity? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think that interview, I was writing it out on email. And so you can see the difference between me thinking through a question by writing and then me Mm -hmm. in the the flesh on virtual Zoom. Um, I don't know. I've, I've I've wrestled with this a lot, especially since moving to Canada um, from Hong Kong, um, where I was living until 2018. Just because the identity politics and racial politics are so different and distinct. And, you know, just as I was getting used to it in one context, I ended up moving to another. And I'm really, con- I'm really always interested in this because it feels like sometimes it's hard to, to know what we're actually doing sometimes, I guess. Like I, right. when I gave the, um, you know, um, the land acknowledgement, 
at the beginning. Sometimes we, I think when, whenever we think about land acknowledgements, we should also think about what's actually, like, what's it doing? And there are times where sometimes what it's doing is silencing that issue. Sometimes what it's doing is if it's a mar if it's a person of a marginalized background like myself, sometimes it's, it, it flattens our identities, right? In certain ways, not to say it's not important or that it's just lip service or anything like that. But yeah. I think the challenge is to, do the things like that in a way that they create the converse, they make the conversation yeah. more necessary and more expansive and more useful where it feels like because politics and capitalism work the way they do, they're very, very good at gentrifying things at taking practices like that and absorbing it and using it for different ends. Um, which is, again, goes back to the kind of amnesia that I'm thinking about because sometimes we forget why we started doing those things. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think similarly about marginalized identities that, you know, we, we don't necessarily, we don't each individually make up these identities. They're shared and they're communal. Um, and some of them are just outright like fake, like Asian American right. um, identity was created, you know, through um, during the student strikes at San Francisco State University through those students there and at Berkeley and perhaps at UCLA. It's still, <laughs> still right, right. a bit of a controversy yeah. over who really came up with it. But it's not a very old term, you know. Yeah. And it's, it was a politically useful and still is in some ways very politically useful term. And that was the main point. But then we forget right, why that term was made. And then we just identify it with it and say, like, we need empowering representations. Yeah. So I'm supposed to watch Crazy Rich Asians like, as a yeah. half Filipino person who grew up in a very working class community and i'm supposed to feel empowered like no yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah like, that, that movie is just terrible especially to brown yeah. people it's it's absolutely terrible and uh then we often forget our south south asian service workers and we forget yeah. our F filipino nurses filipinx peoples um and so there's something about the way identity works where it we i think we forget why we're doing it um what, what we're actually trying to do with it and instead we kind of jump and we ask for things that the state is offering us or that media or capitalism is offering us, you know, the kind of easy cures to things so um, that we all have our kind of wounds and the only salve is something that the state can do yeah. or something that capitalism can do. And I think that's really, I, you know, as an educator, it's really hard to teach students about that because they already don't know much about race and, and yeah. marginalized histories. And so you kind of have to go through identity, identity politics in order to somehow subvert it, I think. At least as a, as a teacher, that's what I try to do. But th that's one reason I think in like my fiction and All Flowers Bloom particularly, I try to let go of those terms and right. I try to skip over the present because I feel like I, I want new terms. <laughs> you know? yeah. I want us to see how power works and what it's actually doing yeah. as opposed to, you know, thinking about my own racial background, um, which is in the text and scattered a bit in it, but yeah. I didn't want it to be the main focus. You know, I, I wanted to see things a bit more expansively and to be able to see myself in communities and in people's that, you know, that might have oppressed my own peoples, right? right. Like, I think seeing the, the shared vulnerabilities that we all live with um, should bring us closer together, whereas I think sometimes identity politics, as you might call it, is performed in a way that keeps us apart. I have actually heard my students say things like, from a kind of woke perspective, they'll say, like, you need to stay in your place. Yeah. They'll tell other students that. Um, not just white students, like Asian students. Yeah. And that whole language, like, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say, you need to stay in your place, yeah. except in like a film about slavery. <laughs>
when they're talking to <laughs> a slave, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. You know, yeah. the fact that we on the, that I guess people who think of themselves more woke yeah, yeah. and leftists are reiterating that kind of language and separating ourselves so intensely um, is very troubling to me. And I, I don't feel like it's doing anything for, it's actually doing progressive work. I feel like it's actually regressive in a lot of ways, not to say that we do need to like claim, you know, think about appropriation and all that, of course, mm-hmm. But this is, goes back to James Baldwin, right, who saw pain as something that can link us together, but it's usually equipped by the state to drive us apart. Right. And so I, that's what I'm always thinking about with um, marginalization there. Yeah, and also this idea that, I think this is also James Baldwin, this idea that of integration, the state's integration, is also a codification for white supremacy or whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I just have one last question for you. I find it fascinating that in some of the, the uh, articles that I read, that some of your early ref- readers refused to read past the emergence of dragons within All Flowers Bloom. But you said you insisted on publishing the book with Evolve. Um, is that the correct pronunciation? Uh, I think so. <laughs> Evolve. <laughs> Evolve. Yeah, with, with a D at the end, yeah. yeah the, the dragon, knowing that it would lose you 5 to 10% of your readership, even if it would lose you 5 to 10% of your relationship. Why did this specific collision of mythologies between gin and dragons appeal to you so much? And why did you have to keep it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, it's not really about the dragon. It's more about breaking the genre of historical fiction, which has to happen at some point in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I think it's been broken a bit before that, because you get to this big pleasure cruise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think some readers like we're able to accept that because it's an afterlife thing. Right. But then to think that there are, the history that they're getting is like somehow poisoned or somehow impure was really shocking to me and kind of funny. <laughs> like, right. Again, this is not like academic work that's being peer reviewed by yeah. experts. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, uh, I don't understand why you, why people have that in the first place, even historical fiction. I think you, it's more fun to jump into and be like, Oh, this is one yeah. nice way of reimagining. It's almost like that, you know, that um, musical Hamilton, like nobody's yeah. going to watch Hamilton and think this is actually what happened. Um, that there might be some basis in fact, but no, like, yeah. of, of, like I, I watched Hamilton. Um, I was talking about it with my students and some of them were shocked that, that like George Washington wasn't black or something. Like there was some really weird <laughs> like, moments like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always see historic, like it's fiction for a reason, Yeah. but then trying to choose when and how to break that immersion is always really hard. And yeah, how far into the novel and, I think the kind of lesson goes that you don't really do things to purposefully do that until about a hundred pages in, like after like 50 to a hundred pages, the, the reader is pretty locked in. Like yeah, you're not going to put down the book very easily. <laughs> they trust you that whatever turn you make, you're going to like live up to it. And so I think the dragon comes like 20 or 25 pages in. <laughs> so it was just like halfway earlier than, than the dragon should have perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I think the real big change after that then is when you're no longer reading historical fiction and you're in the future. And I think that moment is, um, I've heard from people that that is a huge, a huge moment in reading the book. It's not from me, obviously, because I know, always know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I've seen posts on Twitter of people being like, like, this is just, this book is a complete like mind F, you know, <laughs> because you think it's like, you can accept that there's a dragon, accept that there's a big cruise ship in the yeah. afterlife, but then suddenly being put into the far future. Yeah is also very unsettling. And so I think the, the book is full of those kind of unsettling moments. And I think I do have a lot of privilege as an academic with a day job, right? Like I can take a lot of risks. 
that other writers can't. And I can write in a way that I know is might lose audiences. A lot of people, of course, don't have that privilege. Um, if they want to do writing as a career and have an agent and have a good press and all that stuff, I don't really yearn for any of those things all that much. I just want to have good work. Like whatever I do, I want it to be useful and, and thoughtful and, and good and critical. Um, and so that's part of how I'm able to do You know, I figure if I can do that, why not? Yeah. You know, like there's so few of us who are able to do that, who have good paying jobs yeah. that where writing fiction could be one of those parts of that job. And I think it's up to people who do have that privilege in some ways to be able to use it to um, write work that's much more critical and a bit off-putting, right? But right. it um, helps us experience aggravation rather than just yeah. immersion. Yeah, because I, I find, for example, the one of the most uh, remarkable parts about your book um, thinking about the sort of the, the, the pieces set in the future is that whenever we see a kind of something that is set in the future, we always just see one iteration of it, right? Mm -hmm. We always see yeah. this is it. But you actually go through many different iterations of the future from a sort of dystopic, but then also to this sort of H.G. Wells type of uh, mu mutated human, humanoid type of creatures to cyberpunk to mm -hmm. and, and, and I love the fact that it's almost like halfway and now we're already in the future and then we're post Terra, which is mm -hmm. so, so interesting. And I've never seen that done before. And I was wondering, like, why you didn't set up like my thought process was that we were going to get to S, the letter S, and we we're mm. going to end the book. Right. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and when it kept going, I was like, yes, OK, we're pushing into further and further territories. I was wondering why you chose to really push it that far past. I think, like again, um, my writing is always explorative. I never know what I'm doing until I reach the end, <laughs> in that sense. So I'm as surprised as anyone that it got that far, um, <laughs> just because the thought process wasn't finished, and then there were still a lot of things that needed to be said. And I think you'll like see this in the book. Like, There's some really weird moments um, that people pointed out to me after it was published. Like how you'll have a story about like the complete like destruction of this city or something and the people how, how, how much the people are suffering in it um how terrible you know it is and these are like the last generation of the people in this city and then they're all going to die and it's really sad and then the next story is from the point of view of the robots who are like destroying all these people and the robots are just interested in, in having sex with each other and things like that yeah. and so it's like you, you see different all these different sides of things right there's no yeah. like um there's no like uh, orcs, right, or anything like that. There's no bad guys, and, and there's no good guys, obviously either, um, really. And so um, I wanted to kind of like you could just see how what I mean by the thought process, like like well, if these guys are suffering because of these robots, what are the robots doing? You know, like right. um, what if we saw it from their point of view, and yeah. then really having to think and imagine that, and and then realizing you know halfway through a story, like oh, they actually are just interested in hooking up, like that's yeah. <laughs> that's. The, <laughs> That's what they are doing, and that's often what people who have a lot of power are doing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're into their own pleasures and desires, and they're not thinking at all about what they're, <laughs> but the the consequences of what they're doing. And so I think a lot of the the stories, um, you know, they might seem like pretty episodic and self-contained, but they're always in dialogue with the ones before and right after. And there's like arcs to it. There's an arc that's really about religion. There's arcs that's more about um, certain imperial forms. Um, like there's no nation states after a certain point in the novel. It's all like weird, like companies doing things and conglomerates. And so I'm trying to, everything is, it's a kind of, you know, uh, call and respond, I think, um, chapter form yeah. where um, you get stories that you could read alone, but that are always co uh, complementing to, to each other and in conversation. Yeah, it's, it's quite fantastic. Right. Um, thank you so, so much for all the time you've uh, 
shared with me and spent with us. Is there anything else you would like to say before we head off? No, I just, I do encourage, I know a lot of folks who listen to, um, you know, interviews with authors are often, you know, writers themselves. And um, I, I would just say, you know, the, the way I felt as, as a writer who's getting started is to just do what you love and keep writing every day if that's what you love doing. Um, and keep in mind that, you know, you're going to get rejected a lot, like no matter what, you know. Uh, writers have to have a very thick skin, you know, it's yeah. the Cardi B <laughs> song, you know, you, uh, when you fall nine times, you get up 10 kind of thing. And I encourage you to just keep doing it and to also value your audience, you know, um, even if it's a very small audience, um, even, you know, even if it's just your friends at first, don't think you have to be on a stage or anything like that to make a big impact mm -hmm. in someone's life. You can have a huge impact in people's lives um, and you can help yourself <laughs> in that process by writing, um, even if it's, you know, not necessarily for um, a stage. Thank you so much, uh, Kavika Guillermo. That was fantastic. Awesome. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Kavika Guillermo by Mark Herman Lynch. I am Mahmoud Ababne and you are listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and the Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Paul Monnier, Joshua Whitehead, Aruna Srivastava, Mark Lynch, Marge Ruganda, Ryan Stern, and me. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check our website at www.teahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.